Hello and welcome to Max Politics. This is Ben Max from Gotham Gazette, a publication of Citizens Union Foundation. Thanks so much for tuning in here for this episode of the podcast. In just a moment, my conversation with City Council Member Carlina Rivera. She represents City Council District 2 in Manhattan, which uh, she'll describe her community and the neighborhood she represents in just a moment. We'll talk about some of the things she's working on both in her district, but uh, more pressingly for this conversation, the district and the larger city. Uh, Councilmember Rivera chairs the City Council Committee on Hospitals and has recently chaired two very interesting and important uh, council oversight hearings, and we'll talk about that and much more with Councilmember Rivera in just a moment. Before we get into all that with Carlina Rivera, if you've missed any recent episodes of Max Politics here, find them wherever you get your podcasts or at the Gotham Gazette website. I've had some really good, interesting conversation with a bunch of guests at the city level, the state level, uh, in politics, government, advocacy, and so on. I've had some really interesting conversations about the transition in power at the state level from Governor Andrew Cuomo to Governor Kathy Hochul, talking with state controller Tom DiNapoli, state Senate Majority Leader Andrea Stewart-Cousins, and others. And then at the city level, talking to several city council members recently, including now Council Member Rivera in uh, an ongoing series here, talking with council members who have really important oversight roles for the issues the city is dealing with. I spoke recently with Councilmember Keith Powers about his oversight of the city jails, Councilmember Justin Brandon about resiliency oversight, and more. We've also had some really interesting discussions with advocates, experts, and uh, appointed officials, including Ben Furness, the director of the Mayor's Office of Climate and Sustainability. A really interesting conversation there about the de Blasio administration's progress, challenges, priorities around those issues. And also recently, I spoke with Assemblymember Catalina Cruz about issues that she's working on trying to get aid to her Queens constituents related to uh, Hurricane Ida and much more, and talking also about the Judiciary Committee and the Assembly that she sits on and their investigation of former Governor Cuomo. So a lot that we've covered here on the podcast recently in recent weeks and months, so find one or more of those wherever you get your podcast or at the Gotham Gazette website. All right, Councilmember Rivera, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. How are you today? I'm okay, day by day, but I'm, <laughs> we, uh, I'm lucky to be here. We are talking on Friday, October 1st, so you've had a busy week up to this point. Uh, thanks for making some time here today. So a lot of stuff to, to chat about, but most recently you just chaired a uh, co-chaired a hearing in the city council uh, related to the city's vaccination efforts. Um, what was the sort of purpose of that hearing and what did you, you know, sort of headlines, what did you come away with after the hearing? Um, do you feel, you know, a lot of the discussion was about getting over what some people call vaccine hesitancy um, especially in certain communities that have lower vaccination rates. Uh, you had a lot of top city officials, including the health commissioner in front of you. What was the purpose of this hearing and, and, and how did it go in your perspective? Well, we held this hearing to discuss vaccine hesitancy and equity, and it definitely came from a different perspective than what we have had in the council. Our greatest concern months ago, which feels like a really long time, um, used to be availability. Like we didn't have enough vaccine to meet demand. Now we have more than enough. 
Uh, we're offering in-home vaccinations to anyone who wants one, and they can pick which vaccine they get. And we finally had the opportunity to bring the administration, as you mentioned, the commissioner uh, you know, of our health system, to, to the council and speak on how the city is addressing vaccine hesitancy and equity. I, what I appreciate about the commissioner is that he kind of changed the language. He's like, it should be vaccine confidence. Mm. And I think that's what we're really trying to instill in people because we have these populations of New York City that just alarmingly have not been vaccinated. Like you can look at New Yorkers who are aged 85 years and older. They have the lowest vaccination rate of all age groups. There's only 58% of them that are fully vaccinated. These are some of our most vulnerable, you know, our elders in the community. And black New Yorkers also have low vaccination rates. They're about 39% fully vaccinated. So we wanted to hear from the administration, from our city health leaders, what we're doing to reach communities of color color, immigrant communities, religious communities, and talk about how the lack of confidence in the vaccine has, you know, there's a lot of factors into why people are hesitant, why there's a lack of confidence. There's the you know, the systemic racism that is in our health system. There is the history of medical experimentation by the government. It's very layered. It's very comprehensive. And we wanted to hear on the city's equity action plan. And so I think what we got were some top lines on how they're really trying to reach the hard to reach New Yorkers. Uh, But it's clear we still have a lot of work to do. And there were a lot of questions that did go unanswered. Some of that, uh, I was able to catch some of the hearing. Um, some of the uh, questions that seem to go unanswered have to do with really sort of like micro-targeting some of the communities that have some of the lowest vaccination rates at Gotham Gazette. We wrote a piece, as did others, about Far Rockaway and issues there with access. And I know um, Councilmember Savina Brooks-Powers brought that up. Uh, and and former council member for the area now Queensboro president Donna Richards has been has been vocal on this and working on it, um, but that's just one example and there's others. What did you hear or not hear in terms of you know sort of that micro targeting and getting those resources the you know just getting the door knocking done getting the mobile vans is it, what is there a is there a gap is it needing to work better with community based organizations what what were your takeaways there? I think well there was one thing that I asked the city, which was what were they doing to address stigmatizing, shaming, polarizing or scapegoating of people that are unvaccinated? There are many reasons why people go unvaccinated, but our our goal is to really put forward that PSA, which is to saying, if you can, you should be. I think the community-based organizations, those relationships are going to be really important. I I feel like they did underline that. We're really trying to work with our community-based organizations, our faith-based groups. I think that's going to be critical. That's how we did it when I co-chaired the Census Task Force. I thought we did the best that we could considering the circumstances. And I feel like if we're going to try to get inroads into communities that just generally mistrust government, then we have to do it with the people that are serving them every single day. So I feel like they know the community-based organizations are important. So the question is, how do we make sure that they have the resources and the capacity and that they feel respected, that they're not being exploited? Do you think the um, health department and, and other city officials have a good sense of the problems that they need to overcome, whether they're um, 
sort of operational or whether they're more social, you know, whether it's um, certain communities that where certain misinformation seems to spread more than others. You know, there's obviously a lot of talk around whether having had COVID, you know, makes you have some sort of uh, immunity. There might be a, a little bit something to that, apparently, but it's still not the protection that people really need that the vaccine provides. But like that, do you do you have confidence that they know the problems that they have to overcome in further executing this vaccination effort? They have a good understanding. You know, there are there clearly are campaigns there just on misinformation. There is a large kind of anti-vax, you know, movement and campaign. They know that they have to be, they have to approach this work with cultural humility and they have to value the nuances of every community. And a lot of that is addressed with some of these nonprofits, groups and, and clergy. So I believe they truly do know what needs to be done. They need the political will. They need to move as fast as they can and they have to do it very, very carefully. So I think our charter mandated responsibility of oversight and investigation is to make sure that they're taking these steps and they're doing it with expediency. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, we're going to continue to hold their feet to the fire and we're going to continue to, I think, well, for me at least, push these groups that have been doing the work for a really long time and deserve the resources to continue, you know, really making sure that they're staying connected to some of our historically underserved and marginalized people who really need the help. Mm -hmm. If there's one thing or two things that coming away from the hearing, you really hope that the city officials, the health department, other officials from the de Blasio administration is there one or two things coming away that you really hope they took away from what council members were pushing them on to do more, to do less, to do differently, whatever it might be? You know, do you think there were any things that you and your colleagues got across to them to say, um, you know, that they sort of took those to heart or there were some realizations of things that might need to be done differently, getting questioned by people who represent local communities? I think they were really, I would say they, some of the council members were very blunt about what they were and were not doing. And I think in some of those parts of our city in parts like Southeast Queens, those council members know exactly what has to be done. And I think when they were approached again, very bluntly, very clearly about their lack of presence or visibility or how they weren't really connecting to those people that are on the ground, those grassroots organizations, I think they felt like they're a little bit behind the eight ball on that one. Mm -hmm. So I think that they will pick up the pace and they will be, I feel a little more diligent in really reaching out to some of the local leaders in the area, because I feel like that's probably been lacking based on what we heard, not just from the council members, but also some of the groups who were there who had some concerns about what they had been asked to do in the past and how they were, quite frankly, compensated and then how they need to be involved going forward. And I think that's just kind of a general like culture that needs to change within our health system is how do we take care of frontline workers or those people that are on the ground that was even evident in our hearing that we did on you know mental wellness and mental well-being for some of the workers that are inside the hospitals like our residents and interns mm-hmm. yeah i wanted to want to get to that hearing next which you just shared um let's come back to that in just a moment 
Yeah, it is important to note that after the city officials, you heard from others, you heard from people who are on the ground, you heard from providers, you heard from people who, uh, you know, again, I caught I caught some of, of different parts of it while I was doing some other things. And, and um, you know, hearing people say, we can vaccinate more people, we need more help, we need more resources, um, it was, was pretty interesting and, and telling. Uh, it's obviously a massive, massive effort. Um, on the vaccination effort and your particular purview of the city's hospitals, any interesting takeaways there, any important takeaways there? Is that more about the staff and the vaccination mandate that you're concerned about? Anything related to the city's um, you know, public hospital system on the vaccination effort that, that you came away with? Well, the, the one thing I'll say is like vaccine hesitancy cannot be just simply drawn along racial or ethnic lines. There are many, many other reasons which we discussed, you know, it, it which we aim to uncover in the hearing, which we discussed. I would say what what is happening right now in some of our larger systems and kind of this discussion and, and debate is if we're going to put into effect that you either have to be vaccinated or you have to be tested regularly. There also has to be infrastructure so that way those tests can happen and that people feel like they have the access to to that to those resources. And I think that hasn't been happening. And you've heard those uh, concerns from labor. You've heard that from kind of the average worker who either has to spend time getting online, getting their test, or some of the at-home kits, which are prohibitively expensive. So I think that these are some of the things that we have to make sure are kind of in motion and working so that people can get to the point where not only do the vaccination rates go up, but that we understand for those who can't be why and what they can do to take precautions to keep everyone safe. Mm -hmm. It's a very small number of people, though, correct? I mean, relatively speaking. Relatively speaking, it is. And and any issues that you're seeing from Dr. Katz, Mitchell Katz, who runs the city's public hospital and health system, any any other issues in terms of vaccine mandate and and hospital staff and um, efforts to vaccinate, you know, the many thousands of people who work at New York City Health and Hospitals? I think it's an ongoing kind of concern and and something that we have to talk to those workers constantly about is why are the workers unvaccinated? I mentioned some of the vaccination rates in some of our communities of color. I think, you know, when you look at a lot of our municipal workers and frontline workers, they happen to be, you know, immigrants and people of color. And so we also have to understand that we're approaching this already at a disadvantage because of the mistrust, because of the, that experimentation because of this long racist medical history. So it's not going to happen overnight, but it's certainly, I think with time and with a very culturally sensitive, nuanced campaign. I mean, the marketing has been great. I've heard the commercials everywhere from, you know, watching sports to listening to Hot 97. Um, I I think that we have to do it a, a little bit more again, on the ground with the trusted, credible messengers. That's that's 100% what has to get done. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think you're hitting at some really important themes and topics here, which are clear in the hospital system. They're clear now in the schools as the mandates are going to in effect, into effect, where in the hospital system, you have really, really high uh, vaccination percentages among doctors. 
Then it gets lower among nurses. And then I think lower among other hospital staff in the schools, you have the highest, you know, it, it, it seems to almost track, you know, also along socioeconomic, you know, status. And then there's obviously other um, factors, demographic factors that seem to be at play in different parts of the city, whether it's related to race, history, ethnicity, religion. But we see some of those similar trends where, you know, in the schools, the principals seem to have the highest vaccination rates and then teachers and then other staff. So um, I think you're getting at some of the, the key uh, challenges to overcome there um, that seem evident in, you know, in, across different disciplines. Do you feel um, okay right now about where the mandates are at? Do you feel like they should be more aggressive? Uh, are you worried about any impact on the public hospital system in terms of, uh, you know, how mandates may impact services, you know, any, anything you think should be adjusted, any concerns you have about the speed and the, and the mandates? I think we just have to get to a place where people feel confident enough to walk into a hospital. I think, you know, based on the conversations that I've had with my constituents and with people is that people need to get to services and see their primary care physicians because the lack of preventative medicine that uh, that has transpired people not going for their screenings i think it's resulting in new yorkers getting very very sick and being diagnosed at late stages where i i think 18 months ago a screening could have made all the difference it could have made the difference between life and death that is what i think about a lot is how do we get to a place where people feel good about going back into the hospital and it is happening but it's not happening quickly enough and we're losing new yorkers because of it i think it's that and also yeah i think about you know in the schools too i think we have mm-hmm. to figure out remote option make it permanent in, like get the resources together. Let's make sure our families are safe going into the school system. But it's that and people getting the care that they need, which really keeps me up at night. Yeah, that's a really uh, interesting, important point about the, you know, people taking care of, of basic, you know, health screenings and other things that, you know, people have maybe been much more hesitant to do during the pandemic. Um Huge, you know, it strikes me that that's a big concern. I've obviously heard, you know, Dr. Takshi, the the health commissioner, talk about that. We have that right now with now people should be getting the flu shot and, you know, wanting people to make sure to take care of some of these other things that are not COVID, but that obviously can be related. Um, You know, it strikes me also, we don't need to get into this right now, but it strikes me also that, um, and, and some people have talked about this, you know, there's a huge opportunity here now coming out of the tragedies of COVID that, you know, there, there, there should be a more societal understanding of the importance of, you know, sort of healthcare and basic health and, and, you know, helping people with underlying conditions take on those underlying conditions or prevent those underlying conditions so that something like COVID isn't so deadly for people who have, uh, you know, diabetes and other, and other issues. Um, and so, so something to discuss in the future, but it strikes me both what you're saying about, you know, people not taking care of some of those things. And then also we have this opportunity potentially to, you know, really um, home in on on public health. Um, the the hospital system seems the city's public hospital system seems in an OK place as far as you can tell in terms of operations, staffing, everything that's that's happening there. Well, you know, we 
we had a hearing um, based on these really tragic stories of two residents of Lincoln Hospital in the Bronx dying by suicide. And I think when we're talking about just generally our, our mental health and how we take care of the staff that is inside some of these facilities, you know, I did a hearing on this. I did another one very, very recently because interns and residents, their anxieties, they run the gamut from concerns about disruptions to their education, to fears of exposure to the virus, to widespread shortages of PPE and everything they went through during the pandemic. So I think for them, we have to look at how are we taking care of them? There was a survey done by the Committee on Interns and Residents of 700 residents um, who really, really, it's it, it. What it points to this data is doctors are two times more likely to commit suicide than those in other professions. Ten percent of fourth-year medical students and first-year residents report having suicidal thoughts. And we have to think about how we're taking care of the people inside of these facilities. So some people report they're just clearly right overworked and underpaid, which I feel like that is just such a basic understanding, which is already a problem in and of itself. And so they're asked to do a a ton of responsibilities, which they don't mind doing, but it does prevent them from giving more attention and the care that they want to provide to their patients. So we do have to address the culture inside of some of these facilities and how we are making sure that the workers are taking care of themselves. And what is at the root of the solutions there? Is it, is it making sure that hospitals are offering more mental health services uh, to the people working in the hospitals, anything else that came out of the hearing into, or, or any of the other, you know, the reports, the reporting, the discussions that are the, the forward-looking answers on that? Yeah, I mean, residents cited long work hours, their student debt, the culture of of hazing and bullying, the out-of-title work, and then the lack of mental health services as causes of depression and suicide, all of which were exacerbated by the pandemic. And so with the hearing, we were hoping to write, not just have this discussion, but to spark some real change in our hospital system. And I, and I think we did, and I, I hope we've made it possible for CIRs chapters nationwide to push for change too. You know, they have the ability to make changes in the systems. We had a hearing on drug testing of pregnant mothers and how it was being disproportionately done to black and brown mothers. And because of that hearing, that policy changed and became uh, more transparent. So I think, you know, for the hearing that we just uh, held, I think, you know, people are, mental health services need to be safe spaces. And also when they came to really share their stories, we wanted to make sure that not only did they feel free from shame, but that they weren't afraid of retaliation. So there's a lot of things that need to be done within this itself and it's ongoing. Interesting. We're, we're um, more than a year and a half now into COVID-19 being, you know, such a, uh, having such an impact on the city, obviously, and well beyond in the state and the country and, and internationally. You took on this position as chair of the Committee on Hospitals, obviously not knowing there was going to be this pandemic 
Uh, this is obviously one of the positions in the city council most impacted by the fact that we've had this devastating pandemic. How has the last year and a half been for you in terms of that role? I imagine, you know, getting into it, you thought a lot about oversight of the city's public hospitals. You know, they've had a lot of financial issues, you know, maybe that that, that would be, you know, front and center health equity, of course. But um, how is how are you? You know, there's still there's still not time really to reflect because we're still in it. But um, how are you thinking about the last year and a half in this in this role and this and this work? Well, I've learned an incredible amount and I, and I knew that I would. It is just I think, as you mentioned, being in it just to find time to reflect. I think of clearly we haven't processed everything we've been through as a city, but I always remain inspired and optimistic um, and I have faith in New Yorkers. You know, I always say that I knew the work that we did in the hospitals committee was so, so important. I'm not sure if the rest of the city was in agreement until about a year and a half ago. You know, I did hearings on cost disparities on LGBTQ care, and we we were able to establish, you know, we baseline money unprecedented for for trans health navigators inside our public system it had never been done before. Did a hearing on change on the policy on drug testing pregnant mothers, prenatal care electronic medical records, which actually turned into a fascinating hearing at, you know, health data is like the number one hacked information and sick call in our jail system. And and most of that was done before the pandemic. So there's still uh, so much that we want to work on and we want to examine in these last months of the term. So we definitely have a lot coming up for one thing. Uh, we want to, we're long overdue for an oversight hearing on hospital costs and transparency compliance. So I'd like to look into that. Um, additionally, if these last few weeks were any indication, we need to take a long, hard look at extreme weather preparedness in all corners of the city mm. and our hospital system is no exception. And then I'd like to take a closer look at uh, emergency preparedness and the resiliency plans and New York City Health and Hospitals and of course the Greater New York Hospital Hospital Association have in place to ensure that there are no interruptions in patient care should should something extreme happen. Yeah, that's a that's a big one. We obviously saw um, when Sandy hit some some issues uh, around around the hospital system. Um, and I mean, Ida, I mean, Ida was like, right. Well, that that flooding was, uh, I hope, another kind of, you know, awakening, uh, a call to people. It was, it, I think it really affected our infrastructure and showed, showed, of course, our vulnerabilities in that way. But then we also saw, you know, how it affected the, that average worker, like a, a delivery person. Mm-hmm. So um, you mentioned it. We're you're now we're October first here, so three three months left in this term. Um, you're obviously on the ballot uh, seeking re-election. Um, you're not one of the the term limited members, which is the majority of the council that will be leaving. But um, e- even expecting to come back, are there other priorities you have for this final three months? Um, any legislation you're hoping to pass? Anything? other than the hearings you just mentioned and the issues that you just mentioned that you're looking to take on, what else are you hoping to get done and what will you know, be a very short three months, especially when you get into sort of the holidays later in the year and such? Yeah. And I know a lot of, you know, council members want to kind of tie up 
some of their their goals. Everybody's like, angling for their priorities, right? <laughs> Everybody, you yeah. know, they want to leave with a legacy, and I, I respect that. So one is right. We just passed the big delivery stop package um, to help the delivery workers. So we want to make sure that that's implemented. That the city agencies step up and protect uh, delivery workers. I have a bill on ACS, which right is the Administration of Child Services, and so we have uh, bills there on parental rights and making sure that parents understand. As you can probably figure out, black and brown families this proportionately like have cases in ACS, they have issues um, in challenges within that kind of arena. So we want to make sure um, that uh, the legislation I have codifies that parents must be told their existing rights, including the right to an attorney, which doesn't happen. And I think the family regulation system, it surveils and it punishes low-income families and families of color at disproportionate rates. So we're hoping to address that. I have the Gender Motivated uh, Violence Act, and that's back in July. Council member uh, Sylvina Brooks Powers and I, we introduced a bill to amend the the Gender Motivated Violence Act, which city council originally passed over 20 years ago. And that creates a two-year look back window for survivors of sexual assault to file civil actions using the GMVA, even if the statute of limitations has expired. So we're hoping to get that passed before the year is out. And then I have a bill called the Community Opportunity to Purchase Act. Um, I think that we're poised to be dealing with an unprecedented eviction crisis very soon, one the likes our city has never seen. And at the same time, this kind of chaotic market has proven to be, I think, an opportune time for private equity and real estate firms to kind of swoop in on cheaper properties with record low interest rates. So, you know, we have this bill. It would give affordable housing and community developers a right of first refusal on any new properties listed in this very hyper competitive New York City real estate market. So, uh, that you know, it would give like nonprofit affordable housing developers, community land trust, other organizations this kind of time and flexibility they need to put together the financing needed to make a fair market offer on these properties because many times they're going against these larger, very well-funded, sophisticated firms who can put together a deal a little bit faster. So um, it's not a new idea. It's actually been done in Washington, D.C. and San Francisco. Uh, They have forms of COPA on the books. So we're hoping to do something like that. That, that would be seemingly a very big change in how the market works here in the city. Uh, is this, is, I mean, is it, how optimistic are you you can get this past this, this term in the next few months? I mean, that seems like a big one to, to get done in the final months. It is. And we've had a lot of conversations again with all sides. You know, I've uh, certainly put forward, um, some firsts in the council. And I know that, you know, you have to sit down with the opposition and everyone and the people in favor and everyone in between. So it it is something that we're discussing. It would, you know, we would have people that are, you know, who already have a history of affordable housing development. So it would just give them, you know, a better shot at just leveling the playing field. So I think it's something we could get done. I think we all know we need more affordable housing development and to make it easier, I think is in the best interest of our city. So, you know, fingers crossed. Okay. Um, any other upcoming priorities that we should know about? The the um, the final months of a, of a term, as we were just getting at, can be 
very tricky in terms of what gets on and not on the council agenda. There's only so many things that the council will finalize because, you know, without going too too much inside baseball, you know, there's a huge staff at the city council that is evaluating everything and that flags all sorts of issues, you know, legal issues, et cetera. There's all sorts of negotiations that happen with the mayoral administration. It's not just about if it's something the mayor prioritizes or not, there's city agencies that have a ton of expertise on all these issues. And sometimes they push back on something about how it would be implemented or whatever, fairly or not fairly. There's, there's just a huge amount that goes into what winds up actually getting passed at the council. Um, how, how is that going to go? Just generally speaking, I mean, you know, you've, you've been in the council before as an aide, uh, like some of your colleagues. So you, you know, this is not your first sort of rodeo, but um how do you feel like it's going to go these last few months with everybody sort of trying to get their their legacy stuff done or or trying to set themselves up for you know whatever it is is next honestly it's going to be um it's going to be a little i don't want to say chaotic but i think it's it'll be well i'm i'm going to have some fun um and i think it'll be challenging you know i People want to pass bills clearly, right? They want to do things that are great for their constituents and for the city. I think people are also, right, we're focused on a just recovery, on getting people back to work, on getting our tourism numbers back up, making people more comfortable about visiting the city. So we've got a lot going on and not a lot of time before the end of term. So I think you can just see by the nature of even our our calendar, right? Like we are, our hearings are picking back up. Um, legislation is being heard. I think it's going to be, we're going to be on our toes the entire time. And I mean, that's, I I love that. That's, that's when I Mm -hmm. think I'm my best, you know, Mm -hmm. but, um, uh, yeah, it'll be busy. So, uh, we're talking here with city councilmember Carlina Rivera. You're listening to Max Politics. This is Ben Max from Gotham Gazette. Uh, thank you very much for taking all this time. I have a few more questions for you before I, before I let you go. Um, there's a whole lot of stuff that you're involved with. You you've you know focused on small businesses, uh, the streetscape, and, and you know bike lanes and all all pedestrianization and that stuff. I don't think we'll get to any of that in this conversation. But if there's things you want to throw in that you're that you're working on, uh, feel free. Um, but I wanted to ask you, you know, you've been one of the council members who, um, you know, you were you were pushing uh, more for removing responsibilities and funding from the NYPD when when that really was at its, um, you know, sort of most intense before last year's budget. Um, there was some hundreds of millions of dollars move from the NYPD budget and some responsibilities set up to move. That conversation obviously shifted a lot during uh, as COVID continued and as gun violence spiked in the city. And and there was much less of a focus on it as everybody was running for different offices or reelection this past spring leading into the most recent city budget. Has your have your views on, um, you know, what NYPD funding and responsibilities, the scope of the police department, the, you know, six plus billion dollars a year, you know, that's allocated towards the NYPD, which gets up towards 10, if you include lots of other, um, you know, resources that go towards pensions and other things. Has your uh, sort of thinking around that changed at all? Where where are you at on that right now? The, The council also recently had a hearing on shifting responsibilities away from the NYPD and some of that is ongoing, but how are you thinking about all that right now? 
tell you right now, based on kind of our situation in our New York City jail systems, I I think there's probably a ton of reform that has to happen to the Department of Corrections. That is on my mind constantly right now. I would say with the NYPD and some of the reform that we need, it's the one thing I would say, I think with the incoming, I don't want to assume Eric Adams is going to be mayor, but let's 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 assume he's going to be the mayor elect. Um, I think his platform is actually has some reform minded ideas and there are some things there that we can definitely work with. I do think we have to look at how the NYPD functions as a whole, what we can do differently. Why is there it, it is just such a large organization with so many different responsibilities and a huge budget. It's how can we make sure that people feel safe in the city? But, you know, everything I do is community led. So how do we make sure we're also funding the groups, the workforce opportunities? That's what I'm trying to do is I continue to listen to the neighbors in my district. And I want to make sure that we're also putting forward things like, you know, with the my technology training center that I'm doing with making sure we're doing the improvements in transit and affordable housing. There are a lot of things that we have to improve citywide to make sure um, that we're taking care of people. Mm-hmm. And and do you think um, there will be a push? It seems like uh, obviously you're heavily favored to win re-election. Let's let's assume you're in the next city council. Um, Please vote. There, yeah, the uh, the next city council seems potentially like um, it's going to have very different factions in it. But there seems like there's going to be a very large group of progressives who are going to be revisiting this issue in a big way of the funding allocated to the PD and and looking, uh, as you said, about what other, you know, initiatives need to be funded in order to, you know, try to stop as, as, as you got it too, Eric Adams talked about this, stop the, the, the pipeline of people that don't have opportunity or not well-educated, et cetera, that wind up in the criminal justice system. Um, but it seems like after things really got intense and then they, they, you know, this conversation was not what it was this year. That you know, what it was wasn't this year what it was last year. That we're ready for this to boil up again in the next council. Is that how you read it as well? Yeah, I think we have to make sure that our citywide agencies are addressing people's needs, and that includes the NYPD as well. So I think when we come back into this new term with new individuals, I think it's a another opportunity to look at how we can, one, you know, improve the functions of the council. Of course, there is always room for improvement. I think there is room for committee restructuring. And I also think that with some of the ideas, there are a lot of you know, innovative people coming in with very important personal lived experiences from primary caregivers to nonprofit founders to people who have experiences. And and you can put me in this group as well of people that have been incarcerated, of people who um, clearly have not had access to economic opportunity. And I wish people would focus on that. I know there's a lot going on and some people are one issue voters, but economic opportunity is certainly 
the, the, what we need to provide to people in order to make sure that they feel happy and healthy and safe. And I think that is what, um, the council and the new mayor will certainly have in common. Um, I think new member education, so we can successfully translate these experiences into real action in the council is also going to be critical. Mm, that's interesting. Yeah. The, the, the training that council members get at, before they take office, I think has been somewhat, somewhat limited. You're, you're, you're referencing trying to expand that and improve on that. Absolutely. I mean, I think when you have a few dozen new members uh, coming in, many of them have experience actually working in government, but many of them do not. I think when you mentioned the the legislative process earlier as having its own sort of kind of nuances, I think that's there are certainly things I'd let I wish people would have told me in my first year or in my training session. So I want to be able to kind of lend that mentorship and that support that I know is my obligation and responsibility. Um, this new council is going to have uh, a majority women. Uh, seemingly, I haven't done all crunched all the numbers in terms of um, race, race and ethnicity as well, but seemingly um, just a more diverse council in, in other ways. Um, how are you thinking about what that means and what the body of 51 members is going to look like in the next term? Um, aside from, you know, whoever it is coming into the council, you know, getting up to speed on how the council works. How are you thinking about sort of the the makeup of this next council, the demographics and what it means uh, for what the council will do and and act like and, and perform like? I think the results of June's primary election show that qualified, thoughtful women are ready to take the council in a new direction. I think, you know, if you look at citywide races, I would also say that our leaders continue to be entirely male with no Latinos in those positions either. I'm a proud Puerto Rican woman. And this victory demonstrates, I think, why a woman should be, must be the next speaker of the council. I think it's not just about checking a box. I think it's, I mean, since I took office, I've been so frustrated to see women in the council forced to staff more committees than our male colleagues just to get even remotely close to equitable gender representation. Mm-hmm. And studies show that women, just, just to be you know blunt about it, are getting, are just, they're better at getting shit done. Women legislators are more likely to introduce legislation that specifically benefits minority communities. They're better at securing funding for their home communities. And in Congress, they pass twice as many bills as male legislators. So I think that um, we are going to get some great things done. I mean, I've introduced and passed dozens of bills. I've held hospitals accountable during the COVID-19 pandemic. And I've pursued pioneering projects in my district, right? The city's first tech training center, the first busway, the first major climate resiliency project. So I think having these women who know um, the needs of their community and as they lead with courage and compassion, I think we're going to be able to deliver some real results for New Yorkers. And I'm excited. And you're one of a few, uh, a small number, but a few uh, women seeking to become that next speaker of the city council. When you talk to colleagues that are expected to be returning or so many of these new members expected, um, other than what you just said, are there things that you are, you know, sort of your pitch to them as to why you should lead the council 
ways that you would do business, ways that you would ensure member empowerment, whatever it might be, different, different people running for council speaker um, on this, in this internal election that is hugely important for the city, uh, have different ways of sort of capturing why they should be the speaker. What's your pitch to the members? Well, I would say a few things. Well, one, I believe that with a woman and a woman of color at the helm, that we can finally address inequitable healthcare outcomes outcomes for women. I think particularly women of color, maternal mortality and morbidity. I think we can fight for better play, pay and workplace conditions for working class immigrant women, home attendants, delivery workers. And we can connect women of color to opportunities in growing fields like tech, the life sciences, biotech, all where we have been largely excluded. And, you know, what I tell my colleagues coming in or, or, you know, my current colleagues is that, you know, this is a very, very unique opportunity, I think, to lead a majority women council. And I think a woman, a woman is the most appropriate. But I also think, you know, we have to look at we have to pick a person that's going to lead a body that represents all of New York City, all New Yorkers across all five boroughs. I think anyone in a citywide office who plays favorites among the boroughs probably shouldn't be in citywide office. I mean, I've lived in Manhattan, lower Manhattan my entire life life, Lower East Side, born and raised. Um, But I understand the responsibility that comes with the speakership. And so that is making sure that we're elevating members coming in, that they feel prepared to be the best version of themselves to serve their districts and to make sure that someone is listening to them and being, you know, one more one more advocate for what they need. And so I think we're going to have people that come in that know their districts very, very well. And so I'm going to use kind of my accomplishments uh, and the stuff that I've learned to help them. And I think throughout my career, I've made it clear I'm ready, willing and able to work with anyone who has strong, bold ideas to make the city better for all New Yorkers. And when it comes down to the real issues, a lot of which we touched on today, and I'm out in the city and I'm knocking on doors and I'm meeting neighbors, they're not asking about ideological labels, alliances or a voting record, but I think mine more than speaks for itself. They want to know that their elected representatives have their back, that their elected officials have a plan to make their tomorrows better and that they'll fight for them every day. So I grew up on Stanton Street. My background is in organizing. I'm a fighter. I can and and I will bridge the gaps and and build coalitions um, to to help my neighbors where my hometown. Last question. Um, you got at this for a moment there, but but so maybe maybe uh, maybe you sort of already answered it a little bit. But does the next council? How much does the next council need to be a progressive counterweight to a likely Eric Adams mayoralty who? has a lot of progressive ideas and leanings is, but is a, you know, is kind of a hodgepodge of, of stuff. We don't really know exactly what he's going to do on a number of issues. Um, but, you know, obviously ran as a bit more of a moderate centrist, uh, you know, sort of uh, pro business and, uh, you know, taking a, a little bit of a harder line on, on public safety and policing in some ways. Like I said, he's got a mix of ideas, even on those issues, he's got, you know, other stuff going on, but, does the next council need to be more of a progressive sort of counterweight to him? And and is that part of your uh, pitch? I would say that 
there is no doubt that the council is meant to be a check on the mayor. I have no interest in a constant fight. I want to be productive. So if we can find that balance where we're able to put forward an agenda that is unquestionably progressive, um, how can we do so where we're productive, where we're partners, but that we're as separate and equal as possible? That is our role. And, and the speaker's role is to make sure that the council is as united as possible in trying to get a lot of this done. All right, a diplomatic answer that we'd expect from, from someone uh, looking to become the next speaker of the city council and having to, to potentially navigate uh, what that means. I, I, as I've said to some of your colleagues recently, you have to be a little crazy to want to be speaker of the city council. So, ah, well, if it's crazy to go to sleep every night thinking about small business survival and waking up every morning with the new idea to make healthcare accessible for everyone, then yeah, I'm a little crazy. <laughs> All right. Well, Carlina Rivera is a city council member representing parts of lower Manhattan. Thank you very much for all the time. Appreciate it. And, uh, and we'll check in with you as this term is, is coming towards an end. You got it. Thanks again. Thank you.